Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Can you thank our brothers who served us in worship this morning? While you're being seated, take out your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 4. I got to be honest, I didn't expect to see so many people in the house this morning because of all the people in Stafford, but it's, uh, it's really exciting. We had a really full, pretty full first service and second service, and I know that they have uh, a great turnout in Stafford as well. Listen, we've been planning churches for years sending out teams, and it never ceases to amaze me as we send people out. God replenishes this body. And I, listen, I'm so excited for the next season of life here at Pillar Church of Dumfries that we get to go to Swans Creek next week and celebrate that, and so we're excited about that. And I just want to say thank you to all of our volunteers for sports camp. Could you show your appreciation to them? We served 200 children, about 65 families this past week, most of whom were families in the community with a really great sports camp. And this was the first year that we did it without a mission team coming in from the outside. It was all pillar volunteers and honestly it was such a blessing to be a part of that this week and I was so encouraged just to see the spirit of our volunteers serving the families in the community and so I'm grateful for that. I'm just grateful to be a part of a church that wants to multiply, that wants to impact its community, that isn't content to just uh, give up on seeing people reached for Christ and so it's exciting to be a pastor here, and I'm thankful for y'all. With that being said, let's look at Genesis chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. We're in a series on temptation called Forbidden Fruit, where we're just focusing on fleeing temptation to feast on Christ. We'll look at this passage here in chapter 4. Now Adam knew his, Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his, Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? We're going to talk about temptation this morning, particularly not underestimating the power of temptation. Tim Keller, in a sermon on the same text, talks about how the movie Terminator illustrates so well what's at the heart of this message about Cain and Abel. Anybody ever seen the movie Terminator or wants to admit it in public? All right, public admissions. Uh, Terminator, famous 90s era Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, right? This is before he was the governor, he was the Terminator. 
You know, in that movie, maybe you remember if you're familiar with it, but if not, I'll tell you a little bit about it. In that movie, he is, a, he is the Terminator, this sort of space-age futuristic killing machine that is tracking down this woman, Sarah Connor. She's being tracked down, and she knows she's sort of under attack but doesn't know who is after her. And so she, not knowing what sort of thing is pursuing her, she, she's getting advice from authorities who are trying to help her stay safe. And at one point, one of the authorities tells her, just go into public and, and you know, be in a public place. You, you're going to be safe in public because there's lots of other people around and nobody would try to do anything in a crowded space. Now, if you're dealing with a normal person, that might be the case. They didn't know what they were dealing with. Well, when things go haywire in that public space, they rush Sarah Connor and they get her protected and they're not sure entirely what they're dealing with and they take her to the police station and they bring her inside the chief's office and they're sort of buried, surrounded by all the other police officers. They say, you know, they bring her in and she can just rest on the couch and they think, what is the most safe place in the city probably is inside the police office. Nobody's going to try to penetrate the police office, but they don't know the Terminator. See, the point in that, in that scene is they think they're just messing with someone else, but they're messing with the Terminator. They've underestimated the power of this, this pursuit that is going on. The Terminator's different. Well, that's kind of the message that's happening here in the story of Cain and Abel. Maybe you've never understood what the central idea is, but it's, it's really here to, to ask us the question, have you ever underestimated sin? <laughs> and realize, like to, to, to pose the question, did Adam and Eve underestimate sin? The message at the heart of this passage is really a warning that temptation is a present and powerful force in our lives that works in ways that we underestimate. Because we often don't take time to be sober-minded and watchful, think about the power of sin and temptation, the ways that it works, we often underestimate in our lives what we're up against when it comes to temptation. So that's what's at the heart of this passage. Temptation is a present and powerful force in our lives that works in ways that we underestimate. Or to put it simply, temptation works through underestimation. You see, this passage is going to help us see that temptation works through underestimation. There are a few stories in the Bible that are so gripping as the story of Cain and Abel that are so a part of kind of our public consciousness. It's a familiar story, at least the broad outlines of it. But I want us to look for a moment at how, and put our attention on how this, this story is really showing us this idea about temptation and sin and bringing us into focus on the conflict between Cain and his experience of temptation. There's a conflict going on in this passage that even God, when he speaks, warns about it, and it's the conflict between Cain and the inner workings of temptation in his life that he is underestimating. And this message isn't just for Cain, but to show us that we always underestimate the power of sin and temptation. So how does it do that? Maybe you're not convinced. You just see a story here about a brother who kills another brother. Let me show you some things going on in the text. 
when you actually read it and begin to think about it, maybe you're like me, it stirs up a lot of questions, and offers, but it offer, also offers some greater insights. We begin by in, being introduced to these two brothers, Cain and Abel, right at the beginning, and it's important for you to know that their names mean something because it sets up a little bit of what we see as a conflict already going on in the text. Cain's name means the one who takes possession. He's, you know, it's this powerful name, and his brother's name means of no substance. So, you know, mom says, this is my star, right? And this guy, I'm not sure what's up with him. Right. I mean, typical sibling rivalry stuff, right? I was the third child, so I got the leftover name, you know? Am I, anyway, I won't go deeply into that. <laughs> you guys don't need to know all that. Uh, but she says, think about the way it even shows it here. She says, when she has Cain, she celebrates I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And she's excited because the promise was that a seed from her, from her and Adam, somebody who would be born from her and Adam would be the hope for overcoming sin. And so she's like, this guy, I get the, this is my favorite. This is the promise. I'm going to do this. And then she has another child and we just hear about him, right? It's kind of like, you know, when you have the scrapbook, baby book for the first child and the second one, it's just a pile of pictures waiting to be filled in. That, ha- that didn't happen in my house. But this is, you see, in, in Genesis, parental preference is this major theme where the parents are always preferring and thinking they know who looks important, what's important, while God is doing his work through people who seem to not merit his attention. It's a grace from God to know that God does not work along the lines of parental preference or cultural preference or cultural affirmation, but God chooses to distribute his grace because of his kindness and love toward us freely. But what we see is we got already separation, and then we see that these two brothers, they bring an offering to the Lord And the offering is going to play an important role. The offerings are described for each one. Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, we notice. Abel brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat portions. Now, to clue you in, here in the book of Genesis and and in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, the way that's described, the firstborn of the flock and the fat portions, is shorthand for saying Abel brought the best that he could have. The best thing he could bring, he brought. We just get a comment, Cain brought an offering, but Abel brought the best. And we see that God has regard for the offering of Abel. And it says that he didn't regard Cain's offering. He didn't pay special attention to it. So it makes us ask the question, is that what this passage is about? This offering situation? Because I didn't see anywhere where it lined out how the offering was supposed to be done yet, right? Maybe you respond like me. When I read this, I bring my expectations to the text. And I'm sort of like, well, how are they supposed to know? Now, now listen, when you're trying to understand what's at the center of the text or whether we're where we really need to focus, you look at kind of the speed of what it's rolling through. It doesn't explain all that to us. But notice, it doesn't present God capriciously. He's not just randomly doing this. They were just supposed to have a sense of what it looked like to really bring an offering. It was assumed. We don't know why, but somewhere along the way, they knew what a good offering was and what what wasn't. And then we see God respond even to Cain. He doesn't actually condemn Cain. Notice what he does next when he speaks to him. It says, "The uh, the Lord came and he spoke to him. And he says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? 
Though Cain is angry that his, his offering didn't get special attention, his face has fallen because Abel, the, the brother of no substance, has seemingly outdone him. And you see this, but God doesn't say, God doesn't come to say, that's sin. You're like, you know, you're falling apart here. He comes and he warns him. He says, listen, there's still time. I mean, you, you, can, you can just respond to my instruction and my word. He's inviting him in the face of what he sees as an inward danger forming in Cain. He's inviting him to hear his word, to adjust himself to his word, to allow God to correct him, to allow God to instruct him. And so we see that going on here in the way God speaks to him. Notice, you know, some people, you know, even I was talking to someone afterwards, they say, you know, it doesn't seem a little capricious of God to just be upset at Cain. Notice the problem isn't that, that Cain necessarily had the wrong offering. The text wants us to focus on how he responds when God instructs him. When he's still given the chance. When God warns him about the power of temptation. Because he goes on, he says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do well, that's still a future thing, right? Like, go ahead and respond. Like, you know, he, he, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense in which it's showing that God is interacting with him in a gracious, instructive way. But then he warns him. Now we're at the center of the text. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. So what's happening here is God's having a conversation with him. He's giving him instruction. And when we get to the center of the text, we get God speaking about sin and temptation for the first time in the Bible. God warning about its power. And he gives us this kind of rich statement about the danger of sin and temptation and why Cain shouldn't underestimate it and even further why we shouldn't underestimate it. With that reminder, God issues the warning at the center of this text because then what we see is really the rest of the text answers, did Cain heed God's warning? Did he take serious the danger he was in with temptation or did he not take it serious? Did he understand the power of sin and temptation and do we understand it? So this message here in this passage and our message today is answering the question for us about the effect of sin and temptation and it does so by moving us quickly from chapter 3, where it's talking about Adam and Eve falling into sin and temptation, to show us how it quickly advances in the life of the next generation. It's helping us ask the question, does sin stay put? Is it a big deal? Does it just go away with Adam and Eve? Or does it advance in more powerful ways with each passing generation? And the obvious answer is yes, it does. Derek Kidner, a theologian and commentator on this passage wants us to see the progression and intensity of temptation and sin in these chapters and he says this notice in chapter 3 Eve had to be talked into her sin by the serpent but by chapter 4 Cain would not be talked out of his sin even by the Lord himself you see that in chapter 3 she's got to be talked into her sin by the serpent here in chapter 4 Cain can't even be talked out of his sin by God this is showing us something about the power of sin and temptation. Temptation is a present and powerful force drawing us towards sin whether we acknowledge it or not. And I think we see from God's statement here 
three things that we should understand about temptation and its power that I want you to notice. The first one is this, temptation approaches like a predator. The reason we shouldn't underestimate temptation is because temptation approaches us like a predator. The picture presented in this description of sin that God gives to Cain is actually startling and even frightening when you consider it. The first thing that God says about temptation and sin in the Bible is he says it's crouching at the door. (laughs) Crouching at the door. It acts toward us like a predator. You know, a few weeks ago, we heard an amazing illustration from Pastor Clint about the danger of keeping a predator nearby. <laughs> he talked about the, the tiny boa, the boa constrictor named Tiny that was raised as a pet in the man's room. It seemed plenty safe and was a companion for a really long time. And it grew larger and larger over the years. And then one day it just killed its owner unexpected it was always just coiled up there in his room and so in, in a sense this is what he what, what God is saying sin is it crouches it coils up it hides think about the language there uh, of what it's saying when it's saying sin is crouching at the door you imagine somebody coming out the door to something that is lying and waiting to pounce There are two ideas that are obvious in this description that can give us key insights about how we underestimate the power of temptation. First, the idea that sin crouches reminds us that our temptation hides itself in our lives. You know, right now, you may be looking at your life and go, you know, I'm not feeling the pull of temptation powerfully. But see, temptation approaching us like a predator, it hides itself for a key moment. Temptation tends to crouch and hide in our life where we may not see it immediately but waiting for the right moment it coils up like a snake it gets low to the ground like an attacking cat it hides the second insight for us is that it reminds us that sin that temptation waits for the moment to strike that can do the most damage the reason a predator approaches by crouching and hiding is to wait for the moment when it can't only just scare what it's chasing, but it can get in for a kill shot. It lurks like a predator, sin does, not coming at us with a frontal attack most often, power against power. Temptation preys upon the opportune moment to inflict its fatal and destructive strike. You know, from time to time, you might be like me, you like to watch these like National Geographic videos or nature videos, the ones where it's like the world's most powerful predators. And there's always like a, a, a nice guy with a great English accent, you know, calmly narrating this little scene, David Attenborough usually, right? And, and he's just, you ever notice they're just calmly telling us what's happening as the, 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 the lion is crouching in the grass walking up and we can get this picture right they don't stand up they don't make a ton of noise they get low to the grass stalking through the grass trying to get close enough it's crouching and you know in these shows you know where the lions or the cheetahs they're stalking their prey we've all seen them haven't we in preparation they lay low they crouch in the grass and what are they doing they're looking for, some, for one of the animals, not the one that's the fastest, they're not looking for the herd, they're looking for the one that's weak. 
We're not just looking for the weak one. We're looking for one that's isolated. Right? They're looking for one that is unexpectedly just going along with everyday life and not on guard, not diligent, not vigilant. And in all the videos, you can see that the predator is going for one thing on the animals. It's going for the throat. The throat. They get on the throat, and that's where they want to get because they're looking to suffocate what's there, bring it to death, and get their next meal. Now listen, temptation also shows up in weak moments. Weak moments when we're worn down. Maybe in that season where you experienced a disappointment, temptation shows up, begins to speak. Things you never really felt weak about, drawn into when you were strong and thriving, right? Now, in the midst of this disappointment, maybe you didn't get that job that you were hoping to get or that promotion that you thought you deserved, or you're disappointed with the decisions that someone else in your life has made in the way that it's affected you. Now all of a sudden, temptation shows up. What was happening all along? It was crouching. It was waiting. Like a predator. You know, there are other moments other than just weak moments. Times when we're riding high and happy and successful and everything's going right and we're puffed up on our own strength and it just looks like we'll go on like that forever and we stop paying attention to the dangers around us to the things that might drag us down we're having a party right and we're not watchful anymore and then there was that desire that gives forth to lust as James says an over desire and before long it gives way to sin and then it brings death Temptation approaches like a predator and shouldn't be underestimated. We should do everything we can in our life to remain watchful, to be aware of the way that it coils and crouches and hides, particularly in our life. That happens through self-reflection, studying God's word, uh, being present when God's word's being taught, reminded as, as God uses the Holy Spirit to speak into our life, being in community with other Christians who can see maybe the way that sin is crouching in our lives. All of these are things that are necessary if we're not going to underestimate sin crouching in our life. So that's insightful enough. That could be one sermon, but I got some more to say if it's okay. The second thing is temptation accelerates. I want you to see this in the passage. Temptation also accelerates until sin is in power. You know, it's not just about that one time where it got in on us, but temptation accelerates. It puts on the gas until sin is in power. It longs to have us. My translation here in the ESV says its desire is for you right like that's the idea here when it says its desire is for you is an idea of rulership another way it could be translated is it desires to rule over you the same word earlier in Genesis chapter 3 is used for ruling over and, and the whole idea is that temptation comes to our life to accelerate sin's ability to rule over us, to take us captive. 
This is why the warning is given to Cain, you must conquer it. <laughs> you must rule over it. Really, it's trying to, to, to make sure we understand that there's no neutrality here. That the watchfulness is necessary because we, there is no neutrality. This isn't a video game where we push pause and later pick up with fighting temptation. It's happening whether we like it or not. And we underestimate the reality of temptation, the danger of sin in our life, if we believe we ever get a day off from it. Because it wants to own us. And temptation seeks to accelerate until sin is fully in power. Sin's desire here is to have you, to take authority. That's the sense. And the meaning of this text is, listen, like all tyrants, sin is not content just to affect our lives a little bit. Temptation does not subside with a simple taste. There is something about the nature of sin that acts toward us like a power-hungry dictator that will stop at nothing until it rules over us. Listen, we cannot even begin to battle, to really battle temptation until we stop underestimating what it demands of us, what it wants. You know, there's a famous quote that is attributed to all kinds of people. I, I tried one time to figure out who said it, but it says the same idea this way. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Temptation pulls us into this experience. It accelerates as we give in because the goal is always full control. Temptation draws power, listen, from the addictive nature of sin, which we often underestimate. One of the ways that temptation plays on God's goodness is that, you know, God's amazing. The way he made us is that we don't have to think entirely all the time about everything we do. We're able to do multiple things at once, you know, and have sort of layers of what we're most aware of. We can be thinking about what we're communicating in a moment like this, but also aware of the fact that I'm getting a little bit hungry, you know? That's an amazing thing if you think about it. We can also do, you know, if some, you know, we have reactions that are built in us, habits that are there. And that habit forming thing is an amazing thing. It makes us complex creatures who can do, who can manage a bunch of things at once. We can develop good habits that help make life more efficient. God has created us in wonderful ways. But what sin does in that creation of habit and natural reflex, it comes there and it, it, like a predator, it sort of preys on that idea. It distorts it and it creates addiction. It creates physical addiction to the responses of, uh, of risk and reward of doing certain things. When we please ourselves, when we're trying to solve a conflict and we do that, if we begin to do that along the lines of sin, our body will still say, that's, that's good. <laughs> Starts to create some habits. We begin to develop these habits and, and we begin to then also rely on coping mechanisms in our relationships where we were in a jam, things were really difficult and we kind of lied to get out of it. And that coping mechanism becomes a habit because it feels good to get out of the jam, doesn't it? And it becomes reinforced in us until after a while we no longer have to think much about that sin. We don't even think to fight it anymore. It's served us so well, it's like a pet. This is what sin does. It accelerates. The temptation accelerates until sin is in power. 
All of us have been deeply shaped in our souls by giving in to temptation, by the realities of our responses. You know, we have emotions that we no longer are in control of. And please help me out if, if, if you can say amen every now and then so I, I know I'm not just having a, my own testimony here. You know, we have impulses in our life that we have little power over. Thoughts and views of the world that have been disordered that we no longer even examine. That are contrary to God's word. Sin has possessed our hearts and left us deep with deeply formed habits that we take for granted as we've given in to temptation time and time again. Some other great ways of putting it that I came across while preparing, uh, Jonathan Edwards said that sin turns the heart into a fire and there's never been a fire that said enough fuel, I'm satisfied. C.S. Lewis, in, in uh, one of his books, he describes uh, the effect of the Nazis' hatred in one place. He's just thinking about the hatred of the Nazis during uh, World War II and he says that the Germans perhaps at first ill-treated the Jews because they hated them, but listen to what hate does. Afterwards, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. Listen, don't miss that. This is what happens. First, they were acting on some belief that they had or some desire or hatred they had, but before long, they began rearranging their beliefs because of what they had done. Temptation does this, it works back the other way and asks us to rearrange because it wants to take possession of the things that would cause us to feel in our conscience how wrong the things are that we're doing. Tim Keller maybe best put it by saying something like this. He said, after you've done a sin, the sin does you. Sin is not done with you after you are done with it. All addictions are not sins, but all sins are addictive. They want possession. Temptation accelerates till sin is in power. Lastly, I want you to see temptation aims for permanent distortion in us. Look for a moment then and see how temptation never lets up on Cain. And it wants to shift his fundamental views about what is most important in life. You know, the, the, the question that is asked here you notice it says in verse 8, this is the response. The Lord has warned him. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, if you've got teenagers, you've heard phrases like this before, right? Like, this isn't just him talking. Like, he, this isn't a philosophical conversation. Let's just be clear. He's not like, I don't know, God. Like, let's talk. Was I supposed to be in charge of him? No, this is off-putting. Yeah, he's talking smack. Thank you, William. I didn't have that in my notes. But here he is speaking to God, and his response is to just simply try to evade God with his words by saying, am I my brother's keeper? Well, who says that I'm supposed to do that? Listen, fundamental to who we are, God said in Genesis chapter 2, is that we are people who are not to be alone, that we find our thriving in the way that we relate to one another. God gives Eve as a suitable companion, but he, but he doesn't just do that for marriage. He's showing that as people, we do not belong alone. They were to have children and multiply, and there's this developing culture where there's an interrelationship 
relatedness, where we are our brother's keeper, where we care for one another, watch out for one another. We don't flee from our responsibilities to one another. And here he has killed his brother. Not only does he know where his brother is, he knows that he's his keeper. But look what's happening. And this is primary to his identity. This is your brother. What's fun, more fundamental than a family relationship? And he's willing to be like, who's that guy to me? The insight here is this. Sin and temptation always work backwards to distort our most fundamental sense of identity. Who we are. They were created in God's image. God is a keeper. He is one who watches out for us, who cares for us. And here, displaying God's image meant that he would, he would actually celebrate Abel's success rather than seek to kill him, right? And, and so it's so obvious that what's being distorted is the fundamental identity of Cain and who he is. And sin always does this. Here, temptation and sin have so worked their power on Cain that he's willing to deny core things about himself that he would not have before. Listen, the effects of sin and surrendering to temptation is that you will eventually have to either see sin conquered in your life through the power of Jesus or sin will conquer you. Those are the two options. You want to understand the harsh realities and warning realities of heaven and hell. Heaven is the place where sin has been conquered and we're brought under the glorious lordship of Christ, rejoicing in his kindness that he set us free from sin. Hell is the place where sin has conquered us. It's what it looks like when we're no longer available to experience the grace of God. When we've been so conquered by sin that the very image that we were meant to bear is so distorted that evil thrives. Listen, sin and temptation will ask you to change every last thing about yourself until it's recreated you in its own image and distorted everything about the basic things of who you are. Don't forget this. Do not underestimate what it wants in your life and the encroaching power of temptation. And that moment is in every temptation. Every temptation we experience is the gateway into saying no to God, to experiencing the accelerating power of more temptation that seeks to own us and eventually cause us to just reorganize ourselves around sin rather than around God's goodness. It seeks permanent change. And honestly, if we took an honest moment here this morning, in some sense, this distortion is what sin has done to all of us. The truth is, like Cain, we haven't mastered sin. We can look back on our life and many, there's been many moments where sin has mastered us, where that thing that we wanted to fight, the thing we wanted to rid from our life still owns us, still is in our life dominating us. We can see the effects of 
our decisions to give in to temptation, the way that it's worked to get its grips on us and greater power. We can see the distortions it's given us about how we relate to people and, and who we really are and the way that we think about ourselves. And, and if we have an honest moment, we can see the powerful work that sin has done in our life. We've given ourselves over to temptation and it's conquered us. Well, the Apostle Paul describes it powerfully in Romans 7. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Notice how he uses the language of Genesis 3, the crouching predator, or Genesis 4. Evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God. He's got this desire in his inner being to do it right, but I see in my members another law, another sort of thing that is firmly established Waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's talking about this battle, this reality that sin lies close at hand. It's come to take possession and influence in his life in a way that even now, even in moments when he wants to do good, he finds the powerful pull of temptation so strong that it has conquered him. That's his language. His language. It's taken him captive. So much so that he sort of laments and he's, invited, he's inviting us to lament with him about how sin has touched us, how it has affected us, if we can be honest for a moment. Wretched man that I am, he says. You know, this is a terrible condition. It's a terrible condition, one of being conquered and captured by sin. And he asks the question that all of us need to ask. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to listen to me today. Listen, you know, we have been affected by giving into temptation. In many ways, if we're honest, it crouches in our life. We've seen ways in which it's ruled over us. It's accelerated in our life, wants to possess us, and we really cannot in any way on our own ultimately free ourselves. There's an insight in Romans chapter 8 right here that says that the good news for us isn't that we are going to master it, Long ago, our chance of mastering it was over. It has mastered us. But the good news is even for those of us who've been mastered by sin, secret sin that may be mastered, mastering you even in your life, we have a deliverer. We can say with Paul, as wretched as we are, as failing as we are, as many times as we've failed and been distorted, we have a deliverer in Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't need to fix yourself. You do need a deliverer. You see, we want to be the hero of our own story, but the truth is there's no chance that that's ever going to happen. If you ever want to, if you want to not underestimate sin and its damage, you bring yourself to Jesus to receive his power by faith because the deliverer wants to set us free, to fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit and strengthen us for the battle of walking in obedience. And Romans 8, which just flips the page from that statement, says the good news of the gospel that we're here to celebrate today is this. There is therefore, because we can be in Christ, because there's a deliverer, there is today, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The first thing that Jesus delivers us from is the condemnation of sin, the shame that we feel, the guilt that we deserve. And today, whether you have ever known this, no matter how much sin has touched your life, how much you felt captive by it, you can, you can know today 
that you are not condemned. You can experience the joy of knowing that God doesn't hold you guilty. Because Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins, we can be a people who don't experience condemnation before God, but experience deliverance. That's powerful. That's so good that today we can be freed from the shame and guilt of our sin through faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never known what it really means to have a relationship with God, it means that, that the deliverer Jesus, through what he did for us on the cross, standing in our place, paying for our sin, in a sense, letting sin conquer him finally, all the way to death. When he rose up from that grave, he rose up with the keys to our prison in his hands so that we wouldn't be condemned. And today, through simple faith, trusting in that promise, you can be free. But listen, there's more good news. There's good news that not only is there no condemnation, he says there's a new law, a new established truth at work. The law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That law where sin working in our members seems to make it impossible for us to do what is right. He's saying that because of faith in Christ, not only do we have, are we free on paper and guiltless on paper before God, but he promises to give us the powerful working of the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And the law of the spirit that unites us to Christ's power also can set us free from the law of sin and death so that each day, change can happen in your life and the sin that plagues you now does not have to plague your future don't let anybody in the world tell you that you are captive to your past decisions and situations because the law and power of the Holy Spirit is that the presence of God in your life through the promise of Jesus Christ sets us free And today, if we will fellowship with God, if we'll walk with him, if we'll trust this good promise, the Holy Spirit can help us face the sin that has held us captive. So today, we have the opportunity to rejoice that there's no condemnation in the invitation to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome temptation in our life. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect this week as you fellowship with God. That you're going to find that you have all the power necessary in every moment. But it means that there's new power in your life through the Holy Spirit that can help you face that temptation and find victory. And then you can gain day by day by day a better grasp on what it really means to not underestimate the power of temptation. I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a moment as we just reflect on these words and prepare for the Lord's table. Maybe you're here today and you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You didn't know that you had to deliver. You've been, you've been trying to fight the battle against sin on your own. Today, we want you to first take the step to knowing by faith that Jesus is your deliverer to experience forgiveness of sin. Maybe for the first time in your life, you need to be willing to say, God, I see the danger of sin. I want to turn my back on it. You might pray something like that. Lord, help me today to turn from my sin. Right there where you're at. Help me to turn from my sin. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to be my deliverer, to pay for my sin on the cross. 
Thank you for forgiving me. Lord, would you come and wash me clean? Lord, would you write no condemnation over my life? Would you fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit and bring about real change? And if you need deliverance, just call on him right now. There where you're at, we're not in a hurry to leave this place. And when the Lord speaks to us, we need to stop and respond. Maybe right now you just need to respond in sincerity and call on him for that deliverance in your life, which he gives as a free gift. But before we come to the Lord's table, maybe you're here today and you're a Christian and you've felt captive to particular area of sin in your life. Maybe you've even stopped fighting. Today, because of the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in you, take a moment, just confess your sin to God. Ask Him for strength in the coming day to walk with Him. Ask Him for strength in the coming week to guard against temptation. Ask Him for the resolve to do whatever it takes to flee and trust yourself to Christ. Take a moment and respond to the Lord. Lord, we're grateful for your love for us and that we have a deliverer in Jesus Christ. We pray that as we come to the table that we'd be reminded that the reason we can have hope is not because you've given a theoretical promise, but because you've given us your real son to be united to by faith, to live a sinless life, and die the death that we deserve. For that, we give you thanks, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.